0: was once a garden place with all her glories common and men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face in Adam on Diamond. Hello and welcome to
1: another edition of Mormon Matters Podcast, your thoughtful yet provocative weekly romp through all things Mormon, including current events, popular culture, and politics. I'm your host, John DeLynn, very excited to have you with us, and today we have in our virtual studio, John Hamer, who's the Executive Director of the John Whitmer Historical Association and co-edited a book entitled Scattering of the Saints, Schism Within Mormonism, which was released uh, a couple months ago in 2007. John Hamer, welcome. Hey, John. Um, We also have with us today, again, uh, Tom Grover, who is the co-host of 610 AM's KVNU's For the People, broadcasted from Logan, Utah, each weekday. Tom holds a bachelor's degree in political science and is planning to attend law school sometime Mm -hmm. in the distant or near future. Welcome, Tom Grover. Thanks, John. We also have with us John Fowles, who is a lawyer living in London with his wife, who I've met, and she's delightful, and three children. He is interested in Mormonism and Mormon blogs, and has participated for several years in Mormon blogging. John Fowles, how are things going in the UK these days?
2: they are going great. Thanks a lot, John. It's nice to be here again.
1: All right. Thanks for joining us. And we have a new special panelist with us today. Um, I'll call him a ringer. He's my friend Russ Walker. He's a father of four living in Oregon. He works for a political policy advocacy group called Freedom Works, led by former House Majority Leader Dick Armey and Steve Forbes. Russ is the Western States Director and has worked professionally on dozens of issue and partisan campaigns. Russ is also the Vice Chairman of the Oregon Republican Party and is active as a registered lobbyist in several states. He is currently serving with his wife as the Ward Activities Chair and I should mention, in my father's ward in Salem, Oregon. Russ Walker, uh, welcome to Mormon Matters Podcast.
3: Uh, thanks, John. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, hey, Russ. Uh, so it's a pleasure. You're, you're kind of like the number two Republican rank-wise in the state of Oregon, is that right?
3: Uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny thing. I think I'm probably number three. Gordon Smith would be number one as the the oh,
1: the senator. You mean?
3: Yeah, the senator. <laughs> okay. And then the uh, then the chairman and then myself um, because we're all elected statewide. But Gordon Gordon really is the number one. Then the vice then the chairman. Then the vice chairman. Well,
1: we're we're amongst political royalties, so uh, it's great yeah. to have you on.
3: Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but <laughs> thank you very much. It's an honor to be here with all you guys. And I've listened to all of you for uh, some time now, and have respect for all of you.
1: That means you're nervous right now.
3: Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: (laughs) All right, well, you know, this was perhaps one of the biggest weeks for Mormonism in the year 2007. Uh, Mitt Romney yesterday uh, gave his uh, much-anticipated speech on December 6th uh, from Texas from the George Bush, uh, I guess George Bush 42, right, or 41? What is he? Uh, George Bush Sr.'s uh, library, and um, thousands of articles have been written worldwide now about that speech. Um, we, we are actually going to provide the speech we pre- previously to this uh, podcast, so we hope that all of you have already listened to it. Um, and it was an exciting um, event, so let's go ahead and begin and kind of go around the horn and have each of our panelists give their impressions of the speech and then we'll launch into a full discussion. So Russ, since you're the uh honored, distinguished new panelist, why don't you give us some of your thoughts as a um somewhat partisan Republican?
3: You know, you know, John, you're supposed to underpromise and then over deliver, right?
1: Oh sorry, sorry.
3: Yeah. <laughs> um I you know, I uh I thought that um that Mitt Romney did a good job. I it's kind of an interesting thing. I, I I'll keep my my comments fairly short, and then I'm sure we'll get into the details later. But I, uh, he had to he had to answer his his Mormon critics um, because he was losing ground with the Christian evangelicals, and and you know most 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 specifically he was losing ground. Um, uh, oh shoot, I just drew a blank. I'm sorry. I'm a do little you, do nervous. You mean in Iowa?
1: Do you mean in Iowa? Yeah,
3: in, in Iowa, he okay. was. He was losing ground to Huckabee, and uh, unfortunately, the big problem that Mitt has is Mitt. Mitt has a problem with credibility amongst evangelical conservatives and amongst all social conservatives because he's kind of shifted positions on social conservative issues. That has overflowed. That that distrust, if you will, has overflowed into their already existing prejudice or, or bigotry towards Mormons, and and so. It's kind of a twofold problem, and he addressed one of them uh, yesterday in an attempt to kind of shift the shift the attention away from the issue he has, kind of on flip-flopping or shifting positions, and and address the the what he I think probably views as the bigger problem, which is this bigotry, and and it's really come out in that campaign. And I think yesterday he did, generally speaking, a good job of that. His audience was not. The general American public, his audience was a very focused, specific group of people that 25 to 30 percent of the Republican base, and he did a good job of addressing those folks. He really only has to move two to maybe maybe one to three percent of those people, and he doesn't even have to move all of the evangelicals uh, not not that whole one to three percent doesn't have to be evangelical. Some of it can be people from the, the Giuliani camp or the Fred Thompson camp. Those camps uh, or those groups of supporters who are less evangelical and maybe more concerned about other issues, but also have concern about someone being a Mormon and being, you know, kind of held to um, an authority figure. And so I thought he did a fairly decent job of that. I don't think he did what John F. Kennedy did, which is which is um, kind of too bad because he fell a little short. And, and I think I'll leave it at that and I'll go into some specifics a little bit later.
1: Okay, great. Um, thanks for that. Uh Thanks for that, Russell. Let's go ahead and move to Tom Grover. Tom, what do you think of the speech?
4: He exceeded my expectations of the speech, and uh, this was a really delicate line for him to walk, because on the one hand, he needed to address, uh, as Russell just talked about, the concerns of evangelical voters. But at the same time, the minute you start getting into specifics of doctrine or things like that, you're going to create more questions than you can possibly answer. Um, to me, the most interesting thing I've read this morning on the speech was a statement by James Dobson. And there's, uh, there's uh, some things to be read between the lines here. This was released through Real Clear Politics. It says, Governor Romney's speech was a magnificent reminder of the role religious faith must play in government and public policy. His delivery was passionate, and his message was inspirational. This is the key right here. Whether it will answer all the questions and concerns of evangelical Christian voters is yet to be determined. But the governor is to be commended for articulating the importance of our religious heritage as it relates today. And uh, I, I think that says everything about the impact of the speech.
1: In other words, he, he is likely to potentially, by getting such a somewhat positive response from James Dobson, he's likely to succeed potentially in moving the 2 to 3% uh, that Russell talked about. Is that what you're saying, Tom?
4: Maybe. I don't know if, he's, if that's really a positive thing, because James Dobson is is a very shrewd political animal. Um, he says the right things, but I think the key phrase in that whole statement is whether it will answer all the questions and concerns of evangelical voters is yet to be determined. And I think there's an argument there that that kind of a statement is almost a cue to evangelical voters.
1: Interesting, interesting. Uh, it, 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 was there is there a bit in that statement that sort of is saying, all right, now it's open season to discuss Mormon doctrine and theology?
4: Um, not really. Not, you, not explicitly, no. I don't think he'd ever say something like that. The whole
1: yet-to-be-determined thing?
4: Right. Okay. don't well, don't I don't know if be saying, saying there should be a discussion about it. I think he's saying that they are implying that there are still legitimate concerns for evangelical voters, and he's not saying that himself, but rather projecting that opinion upon evangelical voters. So he wouldn't. if you pressed him on that, he wouldn't have to defend that.
1: Right. Now, Tom, you you actually had mentioned to me, we had lunch, I think, before the speech, and you said you thought it might even be a mistake to do the speech because he can't get into doctrine um, or he opens up worms, um, but at the same time, you know, is he really going to have much of an impact um, do, do you still think it was a mistake to do the speech, or do you
4: think he's gonna- uh, I don't know. I don't think he hurt himself. I don't know how much he helped himself, though. Okay. You know, you know within the evangelical community, you've got really two sets of voters. You've got people that are never going to be convinced that uh, it would be acceptable for a Mormon to be a president. And then you've got people that are just honestly um, concerned about something they're unfamiliar with. And his best hope is to reach those people... But at the same time, not talking about specifics almost kind of seems, can seem elusive. I don't know if he did yesterday or not. And that's, and that's really the challenge of, uh, of this whole issue for him. Right.
1: Okay, great. Well, Tom, thanks for your initial thoughts. John Fowles, what did you think?
2: Uh, I was impressed with the speech. Um, I had some trepidation in advance of the speech uh, in the sense that I, I guess almost similarly to Tom, didn't really feel like um, it was a speech he should, should make. Because um, he, what we face in this situation, I mean, by we, I mean Latter-day Saints, is not the same issue that uh, John F. Kennedy was facing with people being concerned about the possibility of a Catholic president. Um, from my perspective, I think that very few people, evangelical Christians, actually are concerned about Salt Lake City running the country through a Romney presidency, although that rhetoric has surfaced here and there. But I think the real problem is um, just simple evangelical disgust at Mormon doctrine. Um, And so it's a fundamental doctrinal disagreement and not so much this um, papal control that uh, people were concerned about with John F. Kennedy. So he was able to do the speech John F Kennedy was able to do the speech by just pretty much reassuring people that he was his own man and that the Vatican wasn't going to have any influence on his policies going into this you know I was afraid that maybe Mitt Romney would try to just pattern it on John F Kennedy's speech and try to say the same thing and to be sure he did say that he said that the authorities of his church would not have any influence on him in his role as president of the United States but I think his speech was far bigger than that, and I think he might have, he seems to have perceived that the issue he was facing was not the same as what John F. Kennedy was facing and that the fundamental problem here is just this, um, distrust of Mormon doctrine and also, as has been mentioned, a simple, um, unawareness or ignorance of Mormon doctrine. And, you know, even, even people who are aware and well-informed about Mormon doctrine, I, I suppose, have um, valid reasons to be concerned about Mormon doctrine, um, because I subscribe to the view that not everyone has to view things the same way. And, you know, I think it's, it's possible, but Romney didn't go into Mormon doctrine. So he, um, kind of revealed that he understood that point and instead made this speech something much bigger and, um, extolled the virtues of rel- rel- religious, religious, pl- uh, pluralism, excuse me, pluralism in our society. And, uh, I, I found that to be a very good focus of the speech, so I thought it was well done.
1: Good, good. All right. Well, John Hamer, why don't you round round it out with your analysis and thoughts?
5: Well, even though the the campaign, the Romney campaign, was billing this as like the Kennedy speech, and there's been all of these comparisons, of course, to that deliberately made. I don't think that this speech was actually played. Uh, the, the way he did it was actually played in a way that makes it a historic speech. I think that the goal of this, the reason why they've rolled this out now after all of this hemming and hawing and whether they're going to do it and whether they're not, is because Romney's general strategy has been that he has got to either win or or do extremely well in both Iowa and New Hampshire, and his candidacy hasn't uh, hasn't. Despite all the money that he's had, all the other uh, uh, high-profile endorsements and everything like that, his candidacy hasn't been able to spark all of the interest and support. And then most recently, in the two states where he's actually has been polling well, these states where he's been advertising heavily, his poll numbers have been dropping. Huckabee's numbers were rising probably in uh, – uh, leaped ahead of him, and so in order to stop this news cycle of Huckabee's on the rise, what is is Romney in freefall? Huckabee's going up. They decide that they can change the news cycle by uh, cre- creating a news event by saying this is the historic speech. This is like Kennedy. This is the Mormon speech. But in the end, Mormonism hardly is discussed, and 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 it's not a speech to the uh, to Americans generally about. Uh, Mormonism, it's like I, I completely agree with russ that this is cast at a narrow portion of the republican party which is religious fundamentalists christian protestant fundamentalists uh and trying to get them to support romney and even if some of their leaders i think it may have been impressed by the speech i think that the the voters uh that in that segment are going to be hard pressed to change their minds about this
1: okay so for you um Was it an effective speech then? Is it going to help him and his cause, or is it going to be neutral or potentially damaging?
5: I think it did what they wanted in terms of changing the news cycle so we're no longer saying, oh, Huckabee's on the rise. We're now talking about Romney making a Kennedy-like speech. And so I think that it accomplished that goal. It was just changing the news cycle for one week. I think that he's he's already had a lot of uh, the fundamentalist leaders on his side, but again, I don't think that it's going to – they, that they are able to lead their congregations in support of uh, a mormon candidate so so i don 't think he's going to get that support so i don 't know that i don 't think it damages him i don 't necessarily think it's going to help much
1: good okay well that's um that's um that's a fair call too well let's uh let 's jump into um to maybe a little more um, passionate discussion about some of the different points. Uh, let, let's first talk about just his, um, his style. Uh, I, I've heard some people say that, um, you know, they were emotional, that it brought tears to their eyes, that the hair was standing up on the back of their neck and arms. And I've heard other people uh, just say that it left them very cold. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll start reverse. John Hamard, h- how was his delivery? What did you think about that? Was he an effective communicator um, or, you know, kind of just a, a robotic politician?
5: I think he does a good job of giving speeches. I think that he. Did, I think that and this was well, um, well presented. I didn't feel anything emotional about it when I watched it. Um, I think that when he's giving the saying these kinds of phrases about religion, he, and and he's able to stay on on his his pre-written message. So, for example, he, he when he talked about. Uh, that he believes that uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world and, and the, those kind of things, that I think that he he delivers that well. Uh, but it's just, for example, like in the last Republican debate where he's asked, do you believe every word of the Bible literally? And he responded by not answering the question, but by answering a different question, he responded, I believe the Bible is the word of God, and he go, went on from there. Um, when the when the moderator redirected it and said, "Well, you didn't answer the question. Do you believe every do you believe the Bible literally?" He said he just replied again. Uh, 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 I I believe the Bible is the word of God, and so I think that I mean he, he, the problem is not whether he is able to have a a prearranged talking point that he can kind of say these code words, but it's if you scratch the surface of it then you get into this point where uh, his beliefs are different from the people he's speaking to, which are these fundamentalist Protestant Christians. And so that's where, that's where it breaks down.
1: Anybody want to respond to John Hamer?
3: Yeah, I, I would. I would. I, I actually, okay. Yeah, uh, R-
1: Russell and then John Fels.
3: I, I actually agree with um, John saying, and I think that that point needs to be really emphasized. There, there's a, there's a difference in the way, uh, there's a difference in the terminology, in the language, in the expression the evangelicals give to their worship of God and Jesus and all of that, than we do as, L- as Latter Day Saints. And when you are a member of the church, uh, Gordon Smith has bumped into this. All of our all of our members who run for office who are Republicans that run outside of the the Mormon corridor bump into this when they speak about Christ. They have to be very careful because when they when they use the wrong language or when they express it in a way that evangelicals feel that they're trying to be like them, it actually creates an obstacle for them that, that's difficult for them to overcome. And, and that's a real big hurdle for members of the church when they run for office. And, and that's what kind of what Romney's bumping into. The, I think the speech did a very good job of sticking to language that was common, but not making evangelicals believe that he was trying to say, look, I am just like you. He expressed, look, I believe in Jesus Christ as my per- as the Savior of the world. But I recognize we have differences in doctrine and in, in, in the way we worship. That was really important because nothing can bother an evangelical more than when a Mormon says, look, I'm just like you. And, uh, you know, he did a good job of that. And I, I think that helps him. Um, it's one of the reasons I think his speech was a success. A success. But, you know, he, he has to be very careful because, like John said, when he gets in those debates, it's not scripted for him. And it's at those moments where we as members of the church kind of slip back into our own language, and that language doesn't work. Like calling Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father. That's not a term. Those aren't words that evangelicals typically use, um, you know.
1: And, and, Russ, I just have to ask you or, or others before we go to John, um, John Fowles. You know, I don't—I I have a short political memory, but I don't remember, like— people obsessing about George Bush Sr., how he talked to evangelicals. I don't remember, um, you know, I, I don't remember Ronald Reagan or even, um, you know, Jimmy Carter. I, I just don't remember this sort of obsession about um, how, you know, the language that's used to appeal to evangelicals. Is that just because they were traditional Protestants, this was a non-issue? Or yeah. uh, or when George Bush Sr. spoke in, in the primaries, do we remember him adopting... You know, evangelical lexicon?
3: But he, he no. is one of them. But he is one of them. I mean, he doesn't have to. George Bush, you know, G- George W. doesn't have to adopt the language of evangelicals. Uh, Protestants are okay because they believe in the Trinity. They're, you know, they're not seen as being someone outside or in the heretical world. You know, we as members of the Church, as Mormons, are in the heretical world according to the rest of Christendom, you know. Um so, I, I, Tom, did you have a comment? I, that, that's kind of my thoughts on it.
4: Well, from the political side, too, like you got to remember, um, two, the, the 2000 and the 2004 presidential campaigns were uh, revolutionary in their strategy. They utilized um, religious communities in a way that had never been done before. There had always been a religious right, especially since the late 1970s, that had been involved in politics. with with limited success and relevance. But when George W. Bush, uh, the son, ran for the president of Texas, he realized, you know, why do I need to set up a complete campaign organization when there's already organizations and churches? I just plug my campaign into them. They can send me uh, lists of members. We can have uh, uh, meetings at homes. And that's a a strategy that he used to become elected governor and then eventually – president in both 2000 and then especially in 2004, and, and so the, the influence and the relevance and the impact of the evangelical community wasn't as important for George Bush Sr. or Ronald Reagan as it was for George Bush Jr.
1: Right, right.
3: Interesting. Yeah, if I can add to that, you know, John, you and I talked about this yesterday, but, but there has been a change, a shift in this country when it comes to uh, not just the way r- religious religious organizations or um, socially conservative organizations play in politics, but the way third-party organizations, period, play in politics. And we saw this in the last election cycle with the uh, swift voters. We saw it with um, – uh, you, you could see it with in the 80s somewhat with the Christian coalition and, and groups like that. Uh, those those third-party organizations that are not necessarily related to a political party but are more interest-oriented policy organizations, on the left and the right, come in and they, they do hit hit pieces against candidates. They, um, they, they endorse other candidates. At the same time, they're beating up the, the their opponent. And, and that is a very important part of the political process today in giving validation to a candidate or in opposing a candidate. And that's one of the reasons why... You know, Mitt Romney right now is feeling the pain of what Huckabee's doing, but more so what these third-party interest groups are doing. It's one of the big reasons he had to res- had to do this speech because he he had what was going on in Iowa is today is that every day people are getting phone calls saying, "Did you know this about Mitt? Did you know this about Mitt? Did you know this about Mitt? Would that influence your vote?" And you know, he can't weather that storm. He's got to respond to them and 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 that's a real that's a new that's a new kind of political device that's really kind of grown up in the last ten to fifteen years that wasn't really utilized much before that time period. What about the rumors
1: yeah. that Rodney himself have started those calls are those pretty silly or, or could there be substance
3: behind it?
4: Uh, I think they're pretty silly
3: yeah I think it's
2: yeah they're,
4: they're really it's really spurious logic that Western Watts is in Forham yeah. utah and there's a person that worked for Western Watts that knows this person that's connected to the Romney campaign, and it's it's a really uh, a stretch of logic. Okay.
1: Well, John Fowles, yeah. let's bring you back in. You were going to talk about your um, your thoughts on his delivery or how you felt about the speech, and any other thing you want to say, go for it.
2: Um, well, yeah, I was just on the delivery uh, topic. I my view differs a little bit here. I I've never been very impressed with Mitt Romney's delivery. In in the speeches he given and in his speaking, um, I still saw John Stewart's Mormotron 2000 or whatever he 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 calls it in in Mitt Romney sort of looked like a robot, um, you know, reading from a script. He did a lot better this time than he has in some other instances, but I still sort of saw that, and I could see John Stewart on stage parroting the speech while Mitt was uh, Romney was giving the speech. So that wasn't, that, I, that wasn't good in my opinion. Um, and it just has to do with just sort of the way he, he says his sentences. I don't know. It's just a picky little thing that I, I haven't been too impressed with. Um, I, at one point um, during the speech, he very recognizably channeled the speech intonation pattern that President Monson takes in his general conference talks. Interesting. Just a certain very recognizable pattern. Um, and my wife and I just both burst out laughing when he did it because we both immediately recognized it. It was just in one sentence. Um, so that, I think, was brought into it as, as well. It almost sounded, and some people on some of the blogs said it sounded like a state president speaking on the 4th of July. <laughs> but that that brings up an interesting point. This this talk, was, in my opinion, fundamentally Mormon. The words he was saying, he was using Mormon-speak. This is speak that we use with each other in our churches when we talk about the United States of America. He was using the same words, the same types of concepts, and praising the United States and the religious liberties of the United States in the exact same way that is done in our churches. So if if evangelical Christians are curious about what Mormons really sound like and really talk to each other about or or whatever. I mean, listening to Romney's speech yesterday should give them a very good idea. And also a lot of fundamentally Mormon doctrines or beliefs surfaced um, in that speech. Um, I think that Romney did not specifically identify Mormon doctrines and speak about them. For example, the Mormon rejection of the Trinitarian notion of one substance, but he did say a few things that you know are attributable to Mormon doctrine, or that many Mormons believe so. And maybe we can talk about those later on. But I, I thought that was very good about the speech that he was he was using Mormon terminology and Mormon types of concepts.
1: Well, let's actually use that as a as a segue because
4: um, hey, John, can I, can oh, I please, throw in one, more, one more thing? Tom, go for it. Just on the delivery, i, I got to come to his defense a little bit, because we're getting a mixed review about whether his delivery was good or not. Mitt's strength is that he can deliver a speech that you would expect in the style of a State of the Union. What he can't do is he can't do the Oval Office type of speech, uh, the folksy type, or even the type by the uh, the, the hearth, uh, the fireside. And that's the part where he's getting nailed. Mike Huckabee can do that, Bill Clinton can do it, and Romney can't. The thing that he would have really benefited from yesterday was an anecdote from his past, where some kind of, uh, if you could tell you know, if you talk about President Monson, if you really wanted to copy President Monson, copy his storytelling. Tell a story about how his faith had um, propelled him and defined who he was or projected him into the path that he's taken, and tell it in a way that transcends all religious traditions. And that's something that could have endeared him to people and taken him beyond this limited um, real estate that he has to stand in where he just gives these state-of-the-union-type speeches. That's his real limitation. They're good speeches, and the delivery is good, but it's always that state-of-the-union type of a speech.
1: It, it, this is going to sound sort of psychobabble-ish, but you know, do, do you ever get the sense that he's not in touch with his personal, almost sensitive um, uh, self, that he's a businessman, he's used to being harsh and shrewd and calculated, and that it's, that it's about business for him? and so he probably doesn't spend a lot of time talking about his feelings or talking about his reflections, and so it's just not natural or comfortable for him to do so. Is that possible?
4: I don't know. I, I've never met the guy, and I don't know how he thinks or acts or what he's like when he's watching a football game, and so it's tough to say.
3: You, you know what, John? He, he is amazingly uh, personal when you meet him one-on-one. You've
1: met him, right, Russ?
3: I have, and, and I think when you meet him one-on-one, he does a very good job of connecting with people uh that that's but a lot of businessmen do that very well i think he just it's just the way he is i just think it's his personality i think it's the way he he projects himself when he stands up and he speeches he's very stiff uh he's very formal and i that you know i don't think you can change that that's just the way he is and and un- unfortunately it doesn't work well in in a lot of our political world today right well let's, but, let's oh go ahead but let me just add this. I, everybody I talked to, and, and uh, e- evangelicals included, thought he did a really good job yesterday. And I probably talked to a half dozen people. And most of these people work in politics, but they thought he hit a home run in his speech. So, you know, uh, sometimes we have a tendency to be a little bit um, critical of little things that other people just kind of don't notice at all. Uh, and so I think he did pretty well.
1: Yeah, if you yeah. listen to like um, Chris Matthews on Hardball, or uh, you know Patrick Buchanan, they were effusively positive about about yeah. the speech, and and they're a more important barometer probably than I am, I'd say, <laughs> or or any of us maybe.
3: Yeah, I'll tell you the most important barometer is what does the average evangelical think? Yeah, because that that's who that speech was for, and um, you know those people have been looking for a place to land in this Republican primary, and. And Huckabee has provided them that, that you know landing strip. And what Romney was trying to do is just take a few of them back. That's all.
1: That's it, yeah. Well, let's turn, um, you know, there, there are going to be pundits all over the world talking about this for several days, doing a lot of political analysis. Maybe the value out of this show is that we can come at it from a Mormon perspective. And so let's turn the conversation away from political strategy and tactics to our impressions as Mormons regarding some of the content that affects mormonism and i'll just throw out some of the things that um you know were curious to me uh the first is sort of not specifically mormon but it's a little bit broader it's this comment where he said freedom requires religion just as religion requires freedom and um obviously people who are more secular non-believers are going to take umbrage with this thought um do any of you have any thoughts on whether that was appropriate, inappropriate? Uh, uh, you know, And from a Mormon perspective, did that rub you the right way or the wrong way? Let's start with John Fowles.
2: Uh, I actually thought that was a very nice insight. Um, I, I acknowledge that there can be societies that are not religious societies um, that have freedom. But, but I think the point that um, Romney was trying to make is tied into our um, tradition of civic republicanism in the United States and that um, a population that is informed by moral convictions uh, makes, a better, makes a better society uh, in terms of self-governance, whereas um, people that aren't informed by such moral convictions um, need to be ruled with a heavier hand uh, or with a big stick. And um, I think it was pointed out on the um, on, on a in some of the Mormon blogs um, after the speech that it's sort of this Hobbesian versus Lockeian Lockean um, dichotomy, and that um, I think Romney was trying to plug into that Lock the Lockean strain, and point that out. Um, of course, um, people many people believe that people can have um, moral convictions and a morally um, formulated life. Uh, based on principles that don't rely in any way on the existence of a supreme being or anything outside of themselves. Um, and, and that's valid. Um, but I do think that the other view is also valid, the view that many people take, which is that religion performs that function very well and that therefore, you know, uh, freedom requires religion in that sense. You know, it might be too, too, um, Straightforward or too simplistic, the way it was stated, in some sense of the word. But you know, he was giving a soundbite, a political speech, and I, I think I I give him enough credit to be aware of the tradition that he was plugging into, and that it wasn't just a throwaway line. Right. John That's Hammer. My view on that.
1: John Hammer, what was your reaction to that um, to that line?
5: Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a secular Mormon, so as, and anyway, as a secular person, I felt that. Uh, you know that that doesn't make any sense so i mean i i agree with what john was just saying that that there you can uh you can obviously ha- have a society that uh was not re- religious that does have freedom and you can obviously have a very religious society that has no freedoms and so it doesn't it, so it's not immediately meaningful if he went, meant to say uh i think that it, a society that is religious is, can be has a capacity to be more free or something like that that's not precisely what he said so the way he said it i don't i don't think it was meaningful so
4: well, tom what do you think well this is such a, a great discussion because this goes to right the heart of the role of religion in society and in government um i agree with a lot of what's been said but i think it, it, it's absolutely critical to emphasize that moral people aren't necessarily religious. And then there's a second part to that. Religious people aren't necessarily moral. Um, and the the force of government is is something that can't compel stability in the way that voluntary morality can. And a lot of that comes through religion. But it, as it's been noted um, by by list John Fowles, it can come through other, other means as well. People can be moral on their own. The leap that Romney makes, and he does it because of the audience he's targeting, is that because we need that stability, that voluntary morality, that the government needs to be a proponent of that. And that's something I'm uncomfortable with. You know, we, we compare this speech to John F. Kennedy's speech, and I think something at the end that's divergent from Mitt Romney uh, that the JFK said is this. But if this election is decided on the basis that 40 million Americans have lost their chance of being president on the day they were baptized – then it's the whole nation that will be the loser, and that resonates with me. I'd feel really bummed if Mitt Romney was disqualified because he was a Mormon, because to me that means six million Americans don't have a chance of being president—not for real reasons, but because of are LDS. So when Mitt Romney says makes statements like that about religion, um, and, and his, you know even going further uh, in its role in government, to me it feels like he's marginalizing atheists and those that don't that aren't religious in the same way. That Catholics have been marginalized in the past, and maybe even Mormons are now, I think it's a contradictory position for him to take and not an inclusive one
1: and you're probably cool with an atheist being president if if they if they if they appear to you to be a good person and a qualified candidate. is that right tom
4: yeah, absolutely I, I, What I want is a moral person I, I I feel very strongly that that nine times out of ten, when we have positions of high power and somebody's really um, trumpeting their religious credentials. It's a form of political manipulation intended to lull people into a false sense of security and avoid scrutinizing what's really going on. I feel like, and this is really controversial, I feel like that's a lot of what's happened with with our current president. And so I'm really skeptical of people that that cite religion as a qualification explicitly or implicitly for office. Uh, What we don't need is religious people. What we do need is moral people, and if they happen to be religious, that's fine.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm reminded um, of a few quotes um, from Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I, I posted him up on Feminist Mormon Housewives, and the website's going really slow. Um, but but he definitely talks about, I think Western civilization is a good thing. You know, maybe we ought, we ought to try it sometime. He talks about, uh, I think I remember a quote of him saying something like, um, I think Christianity is a great concept. Maybe someone will actually put it into practice someday. <laughs> um, oh, but, but here's, the, here's the quote that I, um, a couple more quotes from Gandhi. I like your Christ... I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Um, he also said, "Those who say religion has nothing to do with politics do not know what religion is." Um, and so, um, anyway, it's yeah. I, I sometimes wish that it's so hard to tell whether a candidate's authentic or not about their religion. Um, they could be lying or pandering. I almost sometimes wish that a, that a candidate's religiosity were sort of just completely removed. From the equation altogether, um, but uh, but uh, uh, Russell, why don't you jump in and give some final thoughts on this point?
3: Yeah, I just uh, I'll just add I thought it was uh, I thought it was a well-stated uh, statement. I, I don't I, I got a little bit of a different take on it when I when I heard it and I, I've read it several times. I'll read it once again real quick. Freedom requires religion, just as religion requires freedom. Freedom opens the window of the soul so that man can discover his most profound beliefs and commune with God. Freedom and religion endure together or perish alone. And I I thought that was interesting. And the way I took that is when when you have freedom, uh, people are allowed to go ahead and express themselves and their relationship with God individually or collectively. But they're allowed to discover that, that relationship on their own. When you don't have freedom you don't you, you you can't you can't express any religion except for the religion that's approved by the state and 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 i i thought that what he was doing was establishing look this was one of the things that makes america unique and it's made us unique for 200 years and it's a beautiful thing because as as we're free we can we can express our our relationship with god individually or collectively and that religion then helps us as a country you know and I, this is an He didn't state this, but I I think this is also, he's stating this, that religion helps us as a country remain a moral and good people. And, and, you know, when I heard that, I thought it was a beautiful statement because I actually do believe that that freedom does, I mean, it doesn't matter what religion you are. And he later states that in the next statement, he states that, that that he says, given our grand tradition of religious tolerance and liberty, some wonder whether there are any questions regarding an aspiring candidate's religion that are appropriate. I believe there are. Well, you know that's speaking to his audience, but he's saying, you know, we have this grand tradition of allowing people to to find their their relationship with God on their own, and that's because we're free people. That's what I got out of it.
2: And,
1: and is America somehow unique in how religion informs their informs their experience than, let's say, Germany or, or the United Kingdom?
2: Well, uh, John, um, can politi- I uh, yeah. please,
1: John Fowles, and then
2: I. This point this uh, relates both to what was just said and also to your the, the question you just raised. I think this establishment point is is an important one that um, there is a great possibility with an established church that certain freedoms are trampled on, and um, the United States is unique in that it has no established church and that the Constitution um, prevents that. And I think that. In the speech, Mitt Romney was um, almost flirting with the with a statement that we need to be careful that evangelical Christians don't see themselves as the established church of the United States. In other words, everyone needs to have equal access to the office of the presidency, um, regardless of their religion, and you know to sort of have a de facto religious test that the person aspiring to that office has to be a Trinitarian Christian um, runs directly contrary to the cons- constitutional principles upon which the country was founded. Right. Um, as to the question about um, different countries' experiences with established churches, my opinion has been expressed in a previous More Than Matters podcast, but my observation has been that in many of the countries with established religions, there is um, a lot of trouble for people who don't belong to those established religions, and particularly in terms of institutional costs of not belonging to those religions or of affirmatively belonging to other religions. Um, I think the United Kingdom does a very good job um, with religious toleration, uh, being a country that's an exception to the rule of a country with an established church that doesn't uh, trample heavily on the rights um, and rights of conscience of members of other religions.
1: Any other thoughts? Russ, were you going to say something?
3: I just, I I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, it's one of the things that makes America a very unique place. And I think he was playing on that in that speech. And I I thought it was a beautiful statement. I can understand how an atheist would feel a little bit left out in that statement. But pretty much unless you're an atheist, that statement includes the agnostics. The only people who aren't really included are the atheists. But it also says, look, you have the freedom to establish however you want to relate to God. I guess that means if you choose not to believe in God, that's fine too, you know
5: but i I think that i don't i don't agree with I guess that that's how he how he's presenting it because I think that on the one hand yes he's appealing to our wonderful tradition of pluralism and religious freedom and religious freedom being the separation of church and state, and that that's been the wonderful foundational thing for uh for the United States and I think that's made one of the things that's made us you know a, a vibrant society filled with religions but rather than rather than um, embracing Pluralism all the way. Rather, what he's saying, I think, in this is that there's we have a group of a group of of religions that are pluralistic; that they're not all the same, but they're all acceptable. And that has always been Protestantism, and to that we've added with Kennedy, you know, Catholicism, and we, always Judaism. But then the enemies of the state are radical Islam the enemies are jihadists, the enemies are uh, secularists, and all of those people don't have a place uh, in within freedom of religion. And that uh, and, and he's what he's trying to tell evangelicals who don't believe in the separation of church and state and who don't believe in, in therefore, freedom of religion, that Mormons, though, should be in the in-group. We want to be in the group inside here with you and the Jews and the Catholics and other Protestants. And we can all... You know be in this house together and throw the rocks at the enemies on the outside. That's how I took it
1: well let's um, just for the sake of a few more topics I want to cover this is this has been fascinating let's let's move to um, a couple more of the more deeply mormon questions that that occurred to me. Um, uh, one of the interesting statements was the statement that he made about um, I don't know if it's the authority or the province. Um, of the church, but um you know one thing he said is, "Let me assure you that no authorities of my church or any other church for that matter will ever exert influence on presidential decisions. Their authority is theirs within the province of church affairs, and it ends where the affairs of the nation begin. Now, I have two problems with that he's He's setting a somewhat low bar here. it feels like ever exert influence." And what he's saying here, as I'm interpreting it, is, is two things. Number one is that if Gordon B. Hinckley made a public statement about the church's position on something, or if if Gordon B. Hinckley called President, future President Romney and said, I really feel like you ought to consider heavily going this way, um, he's saying that that will, will, will not ever exert influence on him. That, that's how I'm reading it. And, and then the second thing he's also saying, he seems to be limiting the church's authority. He's saying that their authority is theirs within the province of church affairs. And, mm-hmm. and I, John, John Fowles and I had a bit of a discussion about this on the Internet. You know, the Mormonism that I grew up with, there was no limit to the, to the domain and to the authority of the Mormon church. Because God speaks to his prophet who leads his one true church on the earth. And God supersedes all civil law, and so um, if if God says it through the prophet, then then that is the highest authority. And and why would a devout Mormon claim anything other than acknowledging that that would, at a minimum, influence, if not potentially, determine his decision? So that's my case for saying I felt like he wasn't representing what a true Mormon. Uh, not a liberal, enlightened Mormon, but sort of the average true Mormon believes, which is that God speaks to Gordon B. Hinckley, and then we obey a Gordon B. Hinckley, whether we're a politician or not. So, John Fowles, uh, hit me where it hurts.
2: Well, I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't the Church committed itself not to do that? That the Church has committed itself to say that... um, LDS politicians need to act according to the dictates of their own conscience and according to the desires of their constituency, and that uh, you know LDS church statements don't, don't affect LDS politicians because of those caveats. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm quoting the, uh, the church's statement, you know entirely accurately on that, but I think I am, and I think that's the church position. I think actually it always has been. Um, so I, I, I tried to prompt you on, on your own blog, John Dillon, to explain to me what you were taught, I think what you've just said, uh, encapsulates it a little bit better than what you've been expressing on the blog, but I just, it's hard for me to understand what you might have actually been taught growing up, um, because my understanding had always been that, um, that the church doesn't direct politicians what to do, and, um, so that's that's the one, the one part of my answer. The other part actually stems from the Doctrine and Covenants. In section 134, it, it makes a similar statement that um, the the church, the church's power or the that ecclesiastical authority should not extend into the political realm. I mean, I, I don't have the section in front of me, and I'm paraphrasing that, um, but that's the gist of that verse. And I actually think that it's a sort of very ingrained aspect of Mormon thought that that's the case. Um, Maybe, you know, some. a lot of Mormons aren't very familiar with Doctrine and Covenant, Section 134. That's very, very likely. But I think that Section 134 provides a lot of comfort for anyone who has a concern like the one that you've just expressed, John.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't—well, no, two, two things I'll say, and then I want to open it up, uh, maybe have um, Tom come in on this. Uh, first of all, I think it would be silly for the Church to hold a treasonous position— as its public policy so of course the lds church living in the united states post brigham young or post wilford woodruff isn't going to stand up and say our our authority is superiors although i think you could probably find some quotes from joseph f smith in the late nauvoo period where you you might be able to say that he was feeling that way um but so so yes the church has never officially taught this and i, I don't and it's certainly not their position now. I think they want Mitt Romney to get elected. And so I really feel like it's smart for them to come out with a press release saying, we, we don't expect our candidates to obey what we say. Um, but at the same time, uh, for, for a Mormon like me, uh, as I was raised, it's, it's much more simplistic in that God through the prophets and the church are the highest authority, period. And so for any candidate to claim that they weren't going to at least take very seriously what a prophet said as they implement their public policy felt like a bit disingenuous to me for an authentic Mormon, not for maybe one trying to become president who's got to be a politician, has to be practical. Um, So I understand the practical nature of what he's saying. It just didn't feel particularly Mormon to me as I was raised. Now, Tom, what would you think?
4: I am cynical. I believe that... Romney bringing this up was a um, an attempt to reframe the debate about what the Mormon question actually is. If it turns into whether the Mormon hierarchy is going to influence him, it's uh, it, it becomes a repeat of what a lot of what we went through with Kennedy, and therefore seems like an antiquated concern. Uh, does that make sense?
5: Right. Yes. Yeah.
4: So, so I think that was a lot of it. Um, I see where you're coming from, John. But I, again, I guess I fall back on the practical side—that uh, there have been numerous LDS politicians who have not only been not influenced by the church, but in some cases taken positions directly opposite of church teachings. Even Mitt Romney was at one point pro-choice, um, and uh, and so I, I I don't see how in the in the in the general population there could be a concern if it's if it's not authentically Mormon, I don't know. I mean the bottom line is if any Mormon, even the most devout literalist Mormon, is honest with themselves, everybody pick and picks and chooses a little bit with with what they decide they're gonna what counsel they're gonna heed and what counsel they're gonna ignore or disregard. Does that make sense?
1: yeah, it does, but it doesn't feel mormon. it feels newer well, Mormon, but it doesn't feel mormon
4: but then <laughs> that comes to the question of what is Mormon is it absolute allegiance? To complete dominion of every aspect of your life to the to the leadership of the church because nobody does that. Yes,
1: that's Mormonism (laughs) as I was raised. (laughs) Okay, well that's what I'm saying though.
4: But but John, you see what I'm saying? Nobody does that.
1: I do, I do, I do. Uh, (laughs) Russell, why don't you jump in and then I'd love to hear from John. Yeah,
3: you're making me you're you're making me laugh because I I was raised very similar. I would never have thought as a child or as a teenager or even as a twenty something. To, uh, to do anything that was counter any any counsel that I read from one of the leaders of the church. But let, let me say this. I, I actually agree that, that, um, that it's not that way today, and I don't even know if it was ever that way. If you look in church history and you read church history, um, you'll find all kinds of uh, circumstances where even some of the leadership of the church disagreed with one another and fought with one another. I, I can think of two personal examples. You know, one one was, you know, if you, if you look at how his father, George Romney, handled the civil rights issue, he was counseled by apostles not to do what he did and take a very public role in, in favor of civil rights. And yet he took it and he ignored their counsel. And I think there was a letter by Elder Stapley that became quite public in the last several months. Uh, you know, I know from personal experience, having worked on some campaigns where the church was involved, Specifically, I could think of one, the euthanasia campaign here in Oregon several years ago, back in 1997, where the church got very active and they sent out letters to all the state presidents and asked them to read them from the pulpit. And we had several state presidents in the Portland area refuse to do it. They just refused to read the letter. And I remember at the time I, I talked to another state president who I was working with, and he was the, the, the link between the Quorum of the Twelve and the campaign. And he made a comment to me, and, and this was very enlightening for me at that time, and it kind of changed my focus on things in, in, in how I viewed the church. He said, Russ, everyone has their free agency, and it's, a, it's, the, it's, the, it's the principal doctrine of the church is free agency, the ability to choose for yourself what you do. And, you know, I, I thought that was very interesting because these state presidents refused to do what their authoritative leaders were telling them to do, you know. The, the authority over them, the, the area authority was, was asking them to do something, and they knew it came from the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve, and yet they refused to do it. And there was nothing done to them as a result. Right, they had yeah. their agency. And I think that's so,
1: right. I think that's right. So, so I think there's this subpopulation of Mormons, like Russell was raised and like I was raised. I, and I don't, know how to, I don't know whether this is a good strain, a healthy strain of Mormonism, or whether it needs to be stamped out. But I acknowledge that it's an impractical strain. But I, but nonetheless, I did feel it, and I felt betrayed in my earlier, former self as a, as a Mormon by by the words he was saying. John Hamer, did you have any final before I move on to the next question? Did you have any final thought on this? Or
5: yeah, well, I mean, I just would say that it, no matter what, if the leadership, the hierarchy has in the past decided it wanted to uh, influence politics in certain ways, I think that the civil rights. Uh, Movement was an example where the the leadership was concerned that uh, if if the civil rights movement went forward, that that would affect uh, church policies, and so they called up the congressional delegation, all of the different Mormons that that uh, were in Congress, and and told them to to work against it. And well, I, I know a lot of them just said, no, you know, no way, I'm not. I mean, what is this? This is crazy. I'm not. You know, I'm not taking orders. This is my I'm not taking ecclesiastical orders for uh, what I'm doing in in politics. So I, so I don't think so I think that there's always been a this feeling on the part of Mormons who are in politics that they that they're not going to just do exactly what the the church leadership says, even if the church leadership in the past did want to influence them. Today, I I really doubt that Salt Lake would be calling up Romney if he won and telling him to do this and that and the other thing. And 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 I think that he would also be independent. So I'm not. I, I don't think that that's a concern. I think that the that Romney frame put it a, put it out as a concern in order to in order to try to reframe the debate as if that this is the problem. So
2: can I uh, make a comment here? This is John Fowles. Um, just. Is that okay, John? Sure, Harris? please, please. Um, I think that this what what John Hamer was just talking about actually it flows from Mormon doctrine. That um, you know, if you want to talk about doctrinal points and the the issue of free agency and and the view that Latter Day Saints take of free agency, you know, we believe that that's a principle that comes from God and that God respects that principle and that um, God understands that principle of free agency, and so a Mormon politician is representing a constituency that is not, um, that that does not subscribe necessarily to the LDS faith, and they've done so based on their own free agency, the role that politician is playing is to represent the constituency. So, obviously, there's going to be instances where the needs or the desires of the constituency are not going to align with those of the LDS church, and, and it's the, the role that the politician is playing is to represent those items and not uh, the doctrines or policies of the LDS Church. Can any I, I, uh,
1: okay go ahead. sorry John? I got it, yeah,
2: I just think it's connected to the principle of free agency. Well, this, in this case, of the constituency.
1: Yeah, I th- I think what everyone said is very reasonable and um and rational, and it feels right. It's very practical. I'll just ask a quick, fun sort of go around the board yes, no. Can any of you see the Nauvoo Joseph Smith using the type of reasoned, um, calculating, pragmatic language that you've all advanced? Or do you, like me, see the Nauvoo Joseph as saying, no way, uh, you know, the prophet's way and God's way needs to become, uh, you know, the government's way? Real, real quick, so, so John Hamer, would Joseph Smith and Nauvoo agree with the way we're talking now or not?
5: Well, he wouldn't have. To, he doesn't. Joseph Smith and Nauvoo wouldn't have had to worry about uh, Salt Lake calling him up because he's the prophet. So he, you know, he ran. Joseph Smith ran for president, but he didn't have to worry about a Mormon prophet telling him anything because it was all coming, for, you know, through God to him, or just through him, or whatever. So,
1: but but would he see the church as outside um, the political realm as sort of just just another voice, or would he see the president of the United States as having an, an almost a moral obligation to heed his counsel and the church's counsel and God's counsel through him as, as God's prophet.
5: When when he decided to run, he deliberately established secular bodies that um, nominated him. So they had an actual political convention. They had the they had the probably the only non-member that they could get to be involved in it. Uh, who is not a Mormon be the president of the of the their state political convention to nominate him for president. They had the, he. Um, so he went you know, through the he, proper.
1: Th- but what about the whole kingdom of God and the whole? Uh, when he when he
5: established the kingdom of God, the council of the fifty, he deliberately added non-Mormons to it, so there were people who were not Mormons who were members of the council of the fifty because they he it was a separate it was set apart to be separate from the church as a. Um, as a national, as a political institution, and so I think he definitely has saw a separation between church and and state in that way. Although he he was the first clergyman to actually run for president, and so he was also uh, reversing this kind of uh, a stronger position that people had previously to that uh separating church and state so he was saying well i am still clergyman but i could still run but he definitely uh, had a secular exercise of having members and non-members be involved in his nomination and campaign
1: all right so russell do you see joseph smith in nauvoo as being as pragmatic as the rest of you are uh no i don't what do you see what do you see
3: (laughs) you want me to, to, to express it i i just don't i i think joseph smith um I think Joseph Smith married in a lot of ways, although I agree that you know, the, the, with the setting up of the Council of 50, he included secular advice in, in that. And in a lot of the things he did, he had uh, non-members of the church involved in, in giving advice. But I think if you look at Joseph Smith, he saw a marriage of the spiritual and the secular. And with the with the eventual quick coming of the Lord to establish his government on earth, which would be God's government, which would be revealed through the prophet and, and through the involvement of Jesus Christ directly with the prophet. So I think a lot has changed in 150 years when it comes to that.
1: And, and I'm scared to differ with with John Hamer on on any early Mormon history, but that's yeah. that's how I understood the Nauvoo time period. Tom Grover, what do you think?
4: Uh, I, I'd agree with you. I'm not an expert by any means, probably the least among the panel. But I, from from the books I've read and the things I've seen. Uh, I would have to agree with, especially the, the millennialist view that was just expressed, and the, the melding of uh, of things uh, of secular and things spiritual to become one. I think that's a big part of the concept of Zion, and uh, I, I think he would probably disagree. But you know, you also have to remember the the context of the times has changed significantly from a from a regional political affa- affair to a national political affair, and. Uh, I think that matters substantially because there was a lot of about Joseph Smith that was very pragmatic, and I think maybe if he had a, a true national perspective on the the, the church and its politics, he, he might have seen things a little differently if he were alive today. All
1: right, John Fowles, the final word on this point.
2: Well, I disagree with, um, with some of these points. I don't think that Joseph Smith would really approach this very much differently than the pragmatic discussion that we're having right now. So I guess in that sense, I'm uh, agreeing to some extent with John Hamer um, because, first of all, there's the point of the Council of 50, but then also there's um, D&C 134, which we brought up earlier. I've opened it now um, on my computer, so I don't have to paraphrase, but it's written in 1835. That's obviously the Kirtland period, um, a little earlier than Nauvoo. But I mean verse 9 says we do not believe it just to mingle religious influence with civil government whereby one religious society is fostered and another proscribed in its spiritual privileges and the individual rights of its members as citizens denied so that's an establishment point but I think that it also goes to this pragmatic issue of LDS politicians and whether or not um, they are more beholden to their constituencies or to um, LDS hierarchical leadership my 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 personal opinion and view is that Joseph Smith would have gone the pragmatic route um, and not subjected LDS politicians that are representing their own constituencies um, to direction from the church right. i just yep. that's not really based on evidence it's just mm-hmm. my belief about the, nature, the the character of Joseph Smith
4: sure can i, can I ask one question though because and i'm not sure about this but but wasn't Section 134 written by the High Council and had nothing to do with Joseph Smith? I'm pretty sure it was written by the Kirtland High Council.
2: Um, either it, that or... not a revelation. Or, uh, yeah, it's a declaration of belief. Uh, I mean, that's what it says in the intro. Yeah, but I don't think it was written um, by Joseph Smith. But, but I, uh, uh, know who actually, wrote it.
1: A devout Mormon could say it's been canonized, so it doesn't yeah. matter, right?
2: Well, well I mean... It, it,
4: but it still speaks to, you know, there, there still was a... But it still speaks, I think it's still worth considering that it, that may not have been the personal view of Joseph Smith on government. I mean, this is this...
2: I know, this I know was, that. Do you see
4: what I'm saying? I, I don't know. That's I'm pretty obvious, sure yeah, that was that's written by the High Council.
2: You have the evidence that Joseph Smith, you know, d- destroyed a printing press in Nauvoo, so you can say he's a tyrant and, you know, would definitely yeah. dictate... The, the actions of LDS political leaders. But I just, you know, that my, my faith is different, and I don't see Joseph Smith as, as having that personality. So right, right. Well, it's not based me, on evidence.
3: Let me add this too, John. I, I don't necessarily think he would, in, in today's world, if he was dropped in today's world and had an opportunity to kind of figure out what was going on, I don't think he would behave the way he did in 1841. I, I think, you know, you, you, have to, you have to put his behavior in a, in a context of the time, And the era, and I I think it was a different era. I mean, if you look at politics in general and the way people handled politics during that era, it was very different. They didn't behave the same way they behave today. Um, You know, you had had politicians taking off to Texas to establish their own countries, you know, guys that were former congressmen. I mean, you know, it it was a different time and a different period. And so I, I, you know, even though I, I say I think Joseph Smith would have had a different view than we have today, I put it in that context of that period t- of time in American history. Um, if he was dropping today, I think he's a pragmatic guy. He may, very well have, he may very well be exactly where President Hinckley is today, which is, you know what, uh, you, have, you have your ability to make your own decisions as politicians. You represent your constituency, and I think the church has done a very good job of having a hands-off approach for the past you know, 20 years on, that, on, the, on most of those subjects.
0: This earth was once a garden place with all her glories coming And men did live a holy race and worship Jesus face to face In Adam on diamond. We read that Enoch walked with God above the power of Mammon While Zion spread herself abroad And saints and angels sang aloud In Adam on Diomone Her land was good and greatly blessed Beyond all Israel's Canaan Her fame was known from east to west Her peace was great and pure the rest Adam-on-day-amon Hosanna to such days to come Savior's second coming When all the earth In glorious bloom Affords the saints A holy home Like Adam